You must be at least 18 years of age to listen to the following podcast. I am Robert Black, and you are listening to Sexual Heroes. My guest in this episode is Brent Hines, a licensed professional counselor in Colorado with a life coaching practice in California. His work in behavioral health focuses on non-traditional relationships and gay men. He is the author of the books Redefining Normal and Redefining Normal 2, Guides to Happy and Healthy Gay Living, and he is a regular columnist for Outfront Magazine. Brent is the executive director of two nonprofits. One supports LGBTQ and sex-positive charitable organizations, and the other produces learning events with topics that impact gay men. And as if all that wasn't enough, Brent is Mr. Leather Colorado 2010 and the talent behind Probe 7. Hey Brent, thanks for joining me today. I'm excited. I've got coffee. I'm ready to go. (laughs) So you've got a lot of stuff going on. You're like a busy person. I do. Yeah, I think it. I think it came from like I, I never wanted to be bored, so I've got a zillion things going on. Well, mission accomplished. Ta-da! <laughs> a lot of what you do revolves around gay men, their sex lives, their yes. their their lives in general. Absolutely. And gay men experience life differently, right? I think so. I think it's a completely different cultural group, and then within that cultural group, we've got all these different variations too. Right, but. As a behavioral health professional, you know, your work is directed towards gay men specifically, and they need that. When a gay man goes to a heterosexual therapist, counselor, psychiatrist, even their their medical doctor, it's different than going to a provider who's gay and has that, you know, sensitivity. Absolutely. I think it's, it's really important to work with any kind of professionals that kind of are able to see you through whatever lens you need them to see you through. <laughs> and if that's like a medical doctor, knowing that as gay men, we've got concerns with anal health. Maybe we've got concerns about sexual health that most heterosexual people wouldn't. PrEP and HIV, BDSM. It's not just gay people. It's really, if you're into some heavy kink or something, you may want to have a doctor that if they see bruises and lacerations and stuff, they're not going to be like, oh, he's being abused. Right. They're just right. asking questions. So, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, whatever you are, gay or gay, straight, kinky, whatever, as long as you're working with professionals that actually get you. Yeah, I just had this image of myself walking into the doctor's office, pulling down my pants and saying, I think I have this little skin issue on my, on my butt here. Meanwhile, my butt's covered with bruises. And, oh, totally. You know, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Then, yeah, somebody goes, oh my God, holy crap, what's going on? Oh no, it's not that doctor. <laughs> it's just this little spot over here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's, no, I can explain that. It's this other thing. That <laughs> right. It's true. Okay. So in advance of your interview, I was doing some Googling about a statistic. I know, I felt Do- it. Oh wait, no, felt- you, weren't Googling, you weren't Googling me? No, no, I already know about you. Okay. Uh- <laughs> so, you know, a lot of what you help people with is, is sex. Mm-hmm. And I was Googling the average number of people that people have sex with over their lifetime. Okay. And this should be fun. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's all like 
de- depending on which study it might be, you know, two, four, six, eight. Right. It's always un- always under ten. <laughs> right. And my reaction is, and I've got a couple of studies open here that I'm looking at. My reaction is, I can have sex with that many people in one day with both hands tied behind my back, and <laughs> have had that happen. So hmm. most people I know have had way more sex in their lifetime than that. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's funny. I've seen some of these studies too. And it's like, you know, maybe 20 sexual partners over the course of a lifetime. And I'm going, huh? Wow. Okay. Um, but that, that's sort of the <laughs> shame that a lot of, a lot of people feel. I mean, gay straight doesn't matter. It's kind of like if you're a sexually charged person and you have more than that 20 in the space of a year, six months, a month, a party weekend, a lot of us go to stuff like International Mr. Leather or Mid Atlantic Leather, right. or, you know, Folsom, Dory. I mean, whatever yeah. you can, it's very easily if you're if you're part of that community and and choose to engage in it in that kind of a sexual way. Like you said, a day, maybe one party, you could have twenty partners. <laughs> yeah, it's, I get it. But then, I mean, God, if you feel like shame about that, think about what that would do to your self esteem. You're like, oh, I'm a terrible person. I'm a skank. I'm I'm terrible. I'm awful. And you talk about that in your book. Tons, yeah. Gay men have issues with shame. And I thought, (laughs) even I've thought, you know, I can't believe I did that. That was so bad. Totally. Well, shame about so much stuff. This is not sex. It's a body. It's success. It's shame about feeling shame. It just piles and piles. Yeah, but we also shame each other. Oh, and a heartbeat. Oh yeah, we're we're cruel as a culture. We're, we're we can be really nasty. It seems like there's two camps: the the gay guys that are uh, hypersexual. You know, their their life is very sexual. I guess I think mine is in a way because mm-hmm. you know, well, I mean, Cause, cause, <laughs> yeah, because you know. But then there's people. It just doesn't rule their life. They're in a monogamous supposedly monogamous relationship. Sure. And there's a lot of judgment. Absolutely. Well, it's funny because I mean, some people it, you know, we all have priorities in our lives. And I think some people really prioritize intimate contact more than others. Some of it's intimate with connection. Some of it's intimate anonymous. I mean, you know, come dump, whatever. I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for what you prioritize. It might be working out. It might be eating out. It might be whatever hobby you have. Some of those are just more of the sexual hobbyists than others. Mm. There's what they call pigs, right? And and I'm in a <laughs> in a group online of pigs, mm-hmm. and it's like this whole mentality, like an alt culture around that. I don't typically seek out groups and stuff like that, but you know, a lot of people do, and lots of multiple partners. And is that okay? You know, it's funny. At the end of the day, as long as it's along the lines of what you're comfortable with. And if you have a partner or partners, as long as everyone's in agreement about what's okay and what's not, and then to have the opportunity to evaluate it, either internally or with the people that are around you. Mm-hmm. I, I have a long-term partner, my husband, I love him. And I have all these other relationships of people I care about very much. And some of them are love sexually. Some of it's love like interpersonally and emotionally. Sometimes it's all of the above. And, and the nice thing is that my core person, my hubby, gets it. 
And, you know, he doesn't actually feel the same way that I do in his personal life, but he allows me to be who I am and be healthy in the context of our relationship. Mm-hmm. So that's what's really important. Yeah. That's a good gig. Yeah. To, no, yeah. Right. That's why, that's why I'm yeah. not looking to replace. Right. Yeah. That's the same gig I have. Yeah. Right. Well, why would you replace when you can just add? Like if there's nothing intuitively and instinctively wrong with something that you have, you know, you don't need to replace it just because a new bright, shiny object comes around. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of, going back to judgments, I've seen a lot of profiles where people make statements about, you know, derogatory statements about people in open relationships. Oh, yeah. Uh, It happens a lot. Well, there's a lot of judgment about everything. Yeah, God, there's judgment about... You're too fat. You're too skinny. Too hairy. Not hairy enough. You're tattooed. Um, yeah, you're an open relationship. You're positive. Uh, you're on prep and you're a big skank. I, whatever. I mean, there's, you know, judgment and opinions abound, especially online. It always amazes me how, how people just think it's fine to just comment on anything. It's unfortunately became part of our culture. It's like, here, let me give you my opinion. You didn't ask for it, but ta-da. Mm-hmm. So. If someone's reading your book, I know you're covering a lot of these themes in it. What's your general guidance for somebody who's struggling with any of this? Right. Well, it's funny. So I, you know, I, so now I just published the second book this redefining normal one and two. And it's basically, I've been writing these kind of self-help self-improvement articles from a gay perspective for Outfront, which is a magazine based in Colorado for the past 11 years. And it's the one overlying theme in, in or underlying, overlying, whatever. Um, the main basic theme is be true to who you are, have integrity, figure out what really gets you off and, and do it. So not just sexually, I mean, figure out what gets you off in life. You know, the kind of relationships and dynamics that you want. It's all about, yeah, you've got this one life. I mean, yeah, granted, I mean, maybe maybe you believe in reincarnation and all that stuff, but you know what? At the end of the day, you've got this life to live. And if you squander it, it's your fault. So what I really try to do is encourage and entertain and push people to really, you know, try to be the best versions of themselves that they can be. When we read the title, Redefining Normal, it's really about each person defining their own normal. Correct. Well, a lot of times, I mean, the, the reason why it, it was funny how it came about, but I was it actually came from my mother-in-law of all people, but oh. uh, we were, yeah, we were just in a conversation and I was telling her about how I felt it was really important that um, we look at what's normal for us. And if we don't like these normal patterns of our actions and what we think and how we perceive our lives, then it's really important that we redefine what we want to be normal. She goes, Oh, redefining normal. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh my God. And I freaked out. And she's like, you better give me credit. So, <laughs> well, you anyway, just did. I did. I, I, I brought it the book too, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I think it's important that, that we redefine what we want our normal to be. We can't control everything, but there's way more stuff under our control than, than I think most of us really want to admit. I want to talk also about depression. Okay. A little more sure, way, way, to, way to bring us down, right? Yeah, let's bring us down. We'll bring us back oh, up at the end. Okay. <laughs> okay. I've also seen studies that suggest gay men have higher rates of depression mm-hmm. and maybe suicide. Absolutely. And I've known an awful lot of people over the course of my life who have committed suicide. What's your explanation of it? <sighs> you know, I, 
part of the reason why people in the across the board in the LGBTQ community have a huge, like a more significant suicide rate really comes down to these ideas of trauma. So many of us grew up in homes and environments where it wasn't okay. Any kind of population that struggles with feeling alienated or messed up or wrong or broken or at a higher risk for, for all kinds of stuff. I mean, suicide, stress, depression, anxiety, drug use, substance abuse, like all these weird coping skills that don't really help to take away any of the pain. If we don't take the effort to really heal and try to fix and really um, embrace the stuff that made us feel so broken and wrong, then we just keep on acting out. We keep on like doing these things that just like send us into this emotional cyclone of, of despair and anger and self-loathing. And it doesn't matter what we do. I mean, we can go to the gym and get abs. We can have like expensive clothes. We can have sexy friends. We can screw all day long and go on these like big adventures and post about it online. And then some people go home and look at themselves in the mirror and go, you know what? I'm miserable. I'm a fake. I'm a fraud. I'm unhappy. And that, and then, you know, worse than that, they get all these people that idolize them and go, oh, if I could only be those people, I would be so happy. Mm-hmm. But they, they don't know what goes on. And so, you know, so then you've got these other average people that are going, I want what he has. And these people are going, I have nothing. I'm sad. In the general population, I think a lot of people don't seek out care. They, there's a lot of stigma about taking medication. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stigma about going to a psychiatrist or going to a therapist. Yep. And I think what compounds that for gay men is not only is that there that stigma, but then they go into a healthcare system where that therapist or that psychiatrist doesn't get where they're at. Oh yeah. And so it becomes awkward and they don't get the treatment that they need or yeah. Absolutely. Well, and yeah, it even goes as further than that because so you've got all the stigma, like you said, you already feel stigmatized because you feel crappy and you feel broken and weird. And that, you know, what you experience is, is so different than what everyone else experiences, but then you have to go ask for help. And speaking specifically to gay dudes, we're still dudes. We're still raised with the ideas that boys don't cry, that you don't ask for help, you, 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 you man up. And the whole thing is if you say that you're, you're upset or sad or you feel rejected, you know, you're, you're called names, you're emasculated. And then sometimes you get to the point where you do go, I'm going to ask for help. And you go to see somebody, some kind of a professional. And just because they're gay or part of the community doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're worth a crap either. You know, there's some straight people and women that, that can work with gay men, and they're amazing. And there's some gay men that are crappy therapists. So just being part of the culture doesn't really help. But, you know, to go into um, an office and for me to be asked, um, am I married? What's my wife's name? Yeah. You know, I mean, stuff like that where it's just, you know, it already puts me on the defensive and makes me mm-hmm. feel like they're already kind of assuming something about me. Right. Or by the same token, if they find out I'm gay and it's like, oh, you're a, you're a slut, you're a whore. Right. Yeah. Do you, do you have AIDS? Do you, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of like, whoa, hold on. Like, <laughs> back up. I, you know, yeah. Back up, buddy. We, we run the gambit, you know? <laughs> well, I'm going to share a couple of things about myself and help destigmatize. Huh. My first experience with therapy 
was Mm -hmm. at 15 years old. My parents, when I I came out to them then, and they sent me for therapy. And actually, I may have even asked for that therapy. Anyway, when I got there, he started talking about, uh, you know, this plan for me to go home. And I was going to get one of my dad's magazines and find an image of a woman. And I was supposed to masturbate. Mm. Mm. And I said, what, what, huh? What's going on here? And he came clean to me that this was the plan that my parents had set out was a little conversion therapy. Right. And so I stopped going to him. Yeah. I refused to go back. You know, that was my first experience with therapy. And uh, luckily I tried it again years later and it was more successful. But I also, um, as a, Going back even further at 10 years old, I remember telling friends that I wish that I had never been born. So I think depression was an issue my whole life. Um, at In my late teens, I took a bottle of sleeping pills. A friend ended up sticking his fingers down my throat. And now, having worked with different doctors and therapists, I'm on a medication. Um, I did try and go off it at one time, and my partner said... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you ever yeah. do that again, because uh, he noticed the difference, he said, if you ever do that again, we're done. And so I've stayed on my medication and, you know, I'm doing really well, but I think I just want people to know that. Totally. Why? Well, and the more we talk about things, the hopefully the less stigmatizing it is. I mean, we, you know. Well, redefining it, normal. Yeah, totally. We should be at a point in our society where, where boys and girls and whatever gender you determine that you are on whatever spectrum you should feel equally okay being a human being and say, I'm feeling whatever, or I'd like some help. This idea of the stigma stuff, I know it's going to happen, you know, but more, more things like this, the more open that people are about talking and being there and, and being open to being a, able to have these discussions is so important. You know, there's so many things when, when people are experiencing these kind of feelings of isolation, loneliness, desperation, you know, there can be a chemical component. And you know what? If, if you've got the brain chemistry issues, then the meds help. They really Absolutely. do. But keep in mind, there's also so much of this other stuff that can make us feel depressed. Current climate, how we were raised, what kind of discrimination we experienced. Um, you know, do we grow up with poverty and violence and drugs? An um, administration in our own country that hates us. What? Tell me. Yeah. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's depressing. I wake up every day and just, you know, I really hope after November... Um, my anxiety will start getting better under control. And you know what? There is not one damn pill that's going to make me feel less anxious right. when I see some of these posts and these retweets. I'm, you know, I'm supposed to feel that way. I'm supposed to feel disgusted. Now, if it gets to the point where I can't do my, my daily routine or I get suicidal or I lash out at people or I'm just miserable, yeah, you know what? It, it's usually a combination of you know counseling maybe finding some new techniques, um, maybe medications can help take the edge off and drop you down to a more manageable level. Hell, whatever it takes, do it. Anything to keep you out of that desperation, killing yourself or being miserable. I don't want to see any of those outcomes for people. Mm-hmm. So. And I think it's important for people to um, make themselves available to their friends. Sure. You know, it's funny. I got to, I got to a huge debate with, I, with this this one individual who was like, well, you know, 
people need to be better about coming to me and dealing with my issues. I'm like, when do you ask for help? And I, you know, well, I don't, they should just know that I struggle with blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay. So, you know, putting out, there's different ways of asking for help. We talked about social media earlier mm-hmm. and we all know those people. Maybe we are one of those people that puts out um, FML. My life is awful. I'm going to end it all. Like nobody cares, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, and then you get, 50, 100, 500, like, oh, hopes and prayers. I love you. Reach out. Um, Other people have really good people in their lives that they ask for help. And some people just hide. And so nobody knows. I'd like to think I'm intuitive, but I'm definitely not psychic. So I may not know when a friend is struggling. Now, if they call me or message me directly and say, I'm going through a rough time. Do you have some time to talk? I will be right there. You know what? If I love you as a friend and, and we're in each other's lives, just ask me. Like, you don't have to be all dramatic. You don't have to threaten. You don't have to, like, go extreme. And if you don't have those people in your life, then maybe it's a great opportunity to figure out ways of including some of those or developing those kind of relationships. Mm-hmm. It, it is tough. But you know what? The whole thing is that if people don't know that you're in pain, then they can't do anything to help you. But then again, by the same token, if you cry wolf every time you get pissed off about something, People are going to get kind of blind to that. They're going to be like, meh, you know, <laughs> the boy that cried wolf. It's like, okay, well, blah, blah, blah. is having another drama, panic attack. Okay. Yeah. And then you, and then they get more upset because they're like, well, see, nobody cares. I want to go back to talking about sex for a minute. Let's go. I love talking about sex. You can always go back to talking about sex. Well, this is the perfect podcast for that. Dun, dun, dun. I know. Well, well, and you know, I mean, we know each other anyway. And I love that. I love knowing somebody who is sex positive and just doesn't say that there are a lot of people who go i'm sex positive and then they've got eight zillion hang-ups <laughs> and they're super judgy and it's like dude you cannot do that you cannot say you know i'm capping sexual freedom and then get all judgy with people i don't have to be into everything that everyone's into but i can go oh well as long as it's not exploitive it doesn't hurt people um it's legal like, I don't have to be into it, but hey, if it floats your boat, do it. Like, fly that flag, not go, whatever. When it comes to sexual issues, you know, I was, you know, reading through your book and and so many times I could read something, well, I can relate to that, I can relate to that, I can relate to that. What are the things that you've come across over the years, writing your column and counseling? What are the things that you personally have most related to either sexually or not sexually. So for anyone that knows me or has heard me speak, uh, the book is written almost exactly the way that I talk. If you've, if you've had opportunities to do like counseling and life coaching sessions with me, it's very conversational. It's very much just that. And so when, when I started writing, I was writing from a personal perspective and keep in mind what I'm writing isn't truth. What, what I'm writing is my perspectives on things that I find helpful. I would never recommend anybody do anything that I wouldn't actually do myself. This book has 200 articles in it. And I can honestly say that I relate to probably all 200 of them. Mm. Yeah. But it's everything from how do you deal with depression to what if you have a partner that's doing things that you don't like, how do you bring up um, conflict in, in friendships or relationships? Um, How do you identify narcissistic people or dangerous people in your life? And how do you heal from past trauma? 
arguably I relate to, to, to everything that I've written in these, in these books. And one of the things that I think helped me out the most, and yeah, I've been through, I've been through my therapy. Um, I currently have a therapist that I meet with when I, when I feel like I really have stuff to process. And I know that through, you know, who I am today was kind of, it was kind of sitting there underneath. It was sitting underneath a lot of trauma and hurt and being scared. Like I was terrified. You know, I still get social anxiety. I still have terrible body image issues. Even though I do all this stuff, I mean, there's times I have self-worth issues. It's like, am I doing enough? Am I a good enough friend? Am I a good enough partner? So I think, I think honestly, the thing that I took out of all of this writing and all of these like presentations and stuff is that I'm really no more screwed up than anybody else. And I felt so utterly profoundly alone and weird growing up. And, you know, I'm, I'm 45 and I've found my tribe and I'm strangely accepted. I'm like, who, what is this life? Who are these people? I've got friends. I've got, I've got stuff going on. And if you told me this even 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I'd be like, nah, whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, Uh, you you talked about finding a tribe, body image issues, uh, going back 15 years. Let's go back 10. Okay. You you had a a leather title. Yeah. (laughs) So what, what was, what was your inspiration to do that? And how were you feeling about yourself then? Because I know, you know, to run for a leather title, requires feeling good about yourself at the time, right? Yeah. Well, it really depends on what you want to get out of it. You know, it's funny. I've been in, in the leather and kit community for a long, long time. I mean, way before title stuff. It's funny because I, I kind of refused to run. I was, I was living in Colorado at the time. So I, went, I think the first time I went to IML um, in Chicago was like 2004, and I went with a friend after being in a long, I was in a long-term um, monogamous relationship with this kind of abusive meth head that I was like, why did I do this? So I became single and this buddy of mine's like, we should go to IML. And I'm like, okay, this is, wow. Okay. And I was overwhelmed and freaked out, felt that I, <laughs> I made a mistake. And, but then every year I kept on going back and feeling more and more part of it and meeting more and more people and having more sex and having more fun and so, so back in Colorado, they're like, run for a title. You're amazing. You're doing all that stuff. You do all this community stuff. I'm like, meh. And I'm super judgy. I'm super judgy. And people will quote me all the time back home. They were like, you, you used to make fun of it. You're like, I don't need a fucking tiara. I don't, yeah, I don't need, I don't need a tiara to do all this stuff in the community. But it truly was, I was, I was sitting, talking to a buddy of mine in the park and I had an idea for, for something to write. And I was like, that would make a really cool speech. That would be a really cool speech for like IML. And I went, okay, screw it. And I, I, I talked to the producer and I'm like, dude, I think, I think, I think I'll run this year. And he was like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did. And I wasn't, there were, there were a few guys that were super built. I was, I, I'm okay with my body. I'm kind of a thicker dude and I go to the gym, but I didn't have abs. I wasn't all like, you know, Captain Buff. And Did you have to um, do the jockstrap thing? Oh, I totally did the jockstrap thing. And you know what? I look at pictures. I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, part of it <laughs> is owning yourself in the way that you are. And if you want to be, if you want to be better in some ways, 
that's cool, but don't stop living today just because you want something better later on. So you know what? I, I did. I won, I won Mr. Leather Colorado in 2010. And, you know, I had some chunk. But I was charismatic and it was fun. And I'm a big goofball. One of the guys I competed with was super hot, super leather, daddy, buff, motorcycle. He was like, I've got this in the bag. And he actually came in third. So I was like, meh. Um, <laughs> you know, whatever. I knew people in the community and I've been, go- you know, I've been going to IML for years. So it wasn't my first rodeo. I've been going for like six years. So, you know, and I was part of it. So I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to do this to become part of it. I was already there, you know, I had not, and honestly I had nothing to prove. So when in preparation for IML, I just had a good time. I did stuff in my community. I threw events. We had fun. I didn't care about fundraising. It was, it was more about pulling the community together. And then when I got to IML, I, I made friends and I, I knew all these people anyway. It was a blast. Okay, wait. Like, so <laughs> just, just between you and me. Sure. Oh, and, and everyone else listening to them? <laughs> no, right? just between you and me. <laughs> okay, hit mute. Hit mute. Um, <laughs> did you have more sex after getting your title? Uh, no. Actually, uh, you know what? what's funny? I had... Okay, let's okay, let's be honest. And I'm, you know, I don't know if my mom's going to hear this or not, but you know, I'm a very sexual person. And your you mom know, cannot listen to this. No, it's a, why not? But you know what? My mom's seen all the leather crap. It's fine. Okay. You know, I've been in I've been in a few calendars. I've been okay. doing other whatever. My mom knows, and she's read the books. And I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty direct. Yeah. In the book. Mm-hmm. Um. No. So you know, it's funny. I was well on my way to owning my sexuality, and I I have to tell you, IML and the leather and kink community helped me with that is I met people in open and poly relationships. I met people that were into experimenting and I'm a connection guy. Like I don't like anonymous sex. Even if I just know somebody for 10 minutes, I can know if there's a spark. So through those lessons, I knew I was okay. And I dealt with my shame and I dealt with my, my guilt and like being okay with an open relationship. I, so I was already having tons of sex and I, and I love it. It's one of the ways that I connect with people. Sometimes it's for sport. You know, I get it. I'm horny. So I'll jerk off. I'll go and have sex with somebody. I'll, I'll mess around with somebody. That's fine. But honestly, it's a way that I found. I really enjoy connecting with people. Some of my best friends currently I've met through a, you know, kind of a sexual introduction. You know, I've had sex with most of my good friends. I've had sex with most of my good acquaintances. Well, <laughs> and this is Palm Springs after all. Well, you know, I was, you know, hell, I was doing it in Colorado. I've done it. You know, I, I go to Chicago up until COVID. I was going to Chicago at least a couple mm-hmm. times a year. So it was, it was actually really funny. So when I, you know, I, I think when I got to be ready for a local title and then IML, I went there with all of this confidence and all I really wanted, I wanted to make the top 20 so I could give my speech because it was kind of a variation mm-hmm. of the speech I gave to get the title, which was so important about people giving up all of these things that were keeping them down, the shame, the guilt. And it was funny. It was, now I realize now, actually right now, I realized that that was kind of the inception about this idea about redefining normal because I was telling people to give up all the crap that kept them down. Wow. That, hey, thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was funny. So I got what I wanted I, at IML. I did really well. I had a blast. I had tons of sex. I went with my husband. He had tons of sex. Um, I, I, I made the top 20. I get to give my speech. 
I got standing ovation. I looked down. He was crying. I was like, it was this magic moment. And I got to see, I got to see the audience standing up and applauding the idea that I put out. I eventually finished fourth. It was awesome. I have no regrets. I don't care that I didn't win. It's not about my, my self-esteem or anything. And I'm still doing stuff in the community. So, you know, like nobody needs actually a, a leather title or a, you know, a, a medallion or anything to do anything. Just get your button, do it. And if you don't know how to do it, find somebody that is good at it. And, you know, if you want to join communities, just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, find somebody to, to be your buddy in that go, Hey, I want to join. I want to join up and, you know, you know, I, I know you've got tons of people on here that are willing to, uh, to be kind of that, that voice of like, Hey buddy, come on, let, let's go out. I'll introduce you to some people or I'll turn you on to some new things. Yeah. So on top of everything else, you also have a very creative side. You are the uh, talent behind the force known as Probe 7. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Do you want to tell everybody about that? I don't know if talent's the right word, but I enjoy writing music. Um, yeah, the, um, so I, started, um, I started Probe 7 in 1992. I was always kind of the weird kid anyway, so, but I grew up playing piano. And then in middle school, I got my first keyboard and my first bass guitar. And I was like, I'm going to be in a band. So, you know. I was, you play the guitar too? I, I play bass badly. I'm, I'm not I'm not that great. Okay, go on. I'm, I'm a better keyboard guy. but um, Musicians yeah, turn me on. Was that, <laughs> well, then I play a lot of instruments. You should come check out my studio. Okay. Okay. Um yeah. So anyway, I've been, I've been writing, um, it's a lot of synth pop. So I grew up listening to stuff like new order and Depeche mode. And I definitely like some of the darker stuff, like sisters of mercy and skinny puppy and stuff like that. I've been in bands forever. Yeah. So, and I, I put out a few albums, um, the stuff I'm working on now, I got back to the original idea of really collaborating with lots of different musicians and vocalists. So I'm putting out two singles by the end of the year uh, with tons of remixes. And then during COVID, I wanted a project that kept me entertained and amused. So I decided that I was going to do an album of all cover songs. So it's everything. There's, there's a BG song. There's, let's see, there's uh, the final countdown by Europe alone by heart tragedy by the Bee Gees. Just, just these fun songs. And I'm working with 16 different vocalists uh, from all over the world. There's a guy from Brazil. Uh, there's a guy from Amsterdam. Some of these people are, are famous in the industrial and Gothic scene. Some of them are up and coming gay artists. Uh, there's one named Tyler Hall from Chicago. That's amazing. And he's adorable, but you know, I've got vocalists from, from all these different bands and um, different experiences. So it's really exciting. So, it, you know, and during that time of COVID, I was, I was really stuck at home. So I did audiobook versions of both of my books. Um, I wrote all the music for this album. I've been kind of coordinating and doing these like sessions with people. It's been fun. And we'll be sure to post links so people can find you after yeah. this, after this podcast. Cause I'm sure they're going to want to hear more. Totally. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's funny because I mean, so I've got all these different worlds. I live in the, you know, I'm, I'm a licensed counselor in Colorado. I'm getting my license in California but I'm acting as a life coach out here. I love working with people. I love doing, I do trainings on sex positivity and mental health and substance abuse. Then I've got, you know, the writing and the music and I like helping people on collaborations too. So I've got all kinds of weird creative things in the works. 
it's, I ne- I'm never bored. Brent, thank you for being with me today. Grr, you are so welcome. Anytime. <laughs> I love this. I love what you do. I'm so happy for all the success that you're having. I'm, I'm really stoked. Thank you, Brent. I'm really enjoying it. For information with links about a guest appearing on Sexual Heroes, visit the show notes at sexualheroes.com or on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow and message me on Twitter at Robert Black XXX and on Facebook at Real Robert Black. Thanks for listening.